Re? Yes, Ry. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? Um, Miami, on the beach. Someplace probably a little nicer than this, right? Yeah, ooh, uh, maybe uh, like Greece. I heard that's pretty nice. It's a miserable Sunday today. It's rainy, gloomy. The Bills kicked it off today. We are recording right after the Bills game, and they lost. All you losers and whiners who are so confident about the Bills. What do you got to say now? Oh, did a sports ball happen? Did, did sports happen today? Going to the Super Bowl this year? I don't think so. Eh, rejected. Re, re, are we the sports podcast? We are not the sports podcast. But we are the shade podcast, aren't we? We are the throwing shade podcast. We are we are the haters and losers that Donald Trump talked about. That's okay? right. Well, no, we're the winners. Oh, I'm sorry. We're the winners that Donald Trump talked about. We're the haters. Right. The, the haters are the ones who lost... It's okay. I got you. I will help you out. I'll well, we won, when right? We, we stay winning. We stay winning. We stay hating. The Bills fans keep eating it up and losing. I'm a Bills fan. I keep eating it up. <sighs> Sorry for your luck. I keep eating it up. Ah! And welcome back to The Square, not the sports podcast, nope. but we're happening after sports. And you know what? We have a lot more exciting content to offer you today than the steamer that the Buffalo Bills put up. Okay. <laughs> we're, I'm throwing more darts than Josh Allen. All right. Ooh. I am zoom. We're yeah, putting it out there. Just don't stand anywhere near the dartboard if Josh Allen's throwing it. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Right. Maybe maybe if you could run the darts up to the actual board, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe you'd have a little bit luck to, more luck today. Your but, boy, your boy, Cole Beasley, really oh, fucked yes. up today, didn't he? Yes. Yes. He, boy, what, a, what an awesome Maybe guy. if he had the microchip in him, he could have <laughs> found the ball. That's how okay. the ball finds him. That's how the ball finds Yeah, you got to get your chip in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No. Get that sports out of here, unless we're talking about uh, the stadium, which may, maybe now uh, the, the stadium negotiations are, you know, maybe take a little hit when Bills fans are like, oh, these guys might suck now. Who's to say? But we have an action-packed one for you today. We have not one, but two incredible guests with us uh, with different segments. We have an interview uh, later on in the show with New York State Assembly member of the 149th District. John Rivera, super excited. Jim, um, Jim chops it up with John. But at the top of the show, we have very good friend of mine. It's a big buff celebrity get. Okay, (laughs) all these like people on Twitter, you know, they're they exist somewhere in the ether of the internet in the system of tubes. We are like the non-sports Buffalo Twitter podcast, really. Yeah, yeah. When it comes down to it, so we we we. Nab all the big fish, okay? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, we, we got them all. We had Rob Galbraith. We had Rob. we had Adam Bojack. Mm-hmm. And now we got the man, the, the myth, the legend, <laughs> Buffalo Troll. BT, what's up, buddy? What's up, guys? Mr. Happy Troll. to be here. Monsieur nice Troll. First time, long time. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> this I got to say, I don't know what it says about this podcast that a New York State lawmaker gets a kind of a muted reception, but... Uh, Twitter troll with 
maybe 300 followers gets that that kind of hype <laughs> i like it we're the great equalizer okay it says everything you need to know about this podcast <laughs> or, you know we, we get like we get like randy hoke on there we're like yeah all right but then we get we get buffalo troll like hell yeah brother <laughs> no we like randy we like we like randy of course right. we like randy but uh we like buffalo troll he's our well, boy sure. so bt man we got a whole lot of i keep saying it and it keeps happening the mayor's race it's not over. Well, we will not stop talking about it. No, this. we're going to mine this thing for content right. until, uh, you know, your ears bleed, listener, because this is the thing that people are talking about, and we're going to keep talking about it. It's happening, uh, BT. Help us, because you are, you know, we, we have a lot of friends who are lawyers. We have great legal minds, but you, you, I don't know what your job is. I don't really know. Maybe you crawled up out of a sewer somewhere. I don't know. But you seem to have read some of the appellate briefs on uh, the recent ruling we'll by ju- Judge Sinatra. We'll just say that your job's an incel. <laughs> Is that a job? Do they pay you for that now? I'm sure it's a job by now. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How much money would you... Well, it's involuntary. It's not a job. When UBI happens, that's going to be my job. Involuntary that. celibate. That's not a job. That's more like a... Well, I don't want to get into the logistics of that. Look, BT, I don't know if you're sell, incel, whatever. Not my business. But the business of the day is we are talking about Byron Brown getting back on the ballot. How did it happen, dude? Yeah, I think we're uh, we're in for an interesting week. The, the mayor's campaign started two lawsuits, one in state court, one in federal court. And that's, that's kind of old news by now. But as we know, the Friday, the 3rd of September, in both the state court lawsuit and the federal court lawsuit the judges handed down a tro which is basically it's a temporary restraining order and it's a it's an order from the court saying hey you got to do this so they both ordered the board of elections to put the mayor's name on the ballot under the buffalo party and both had the same reasoning which is that the new york state election law that applies to the petitioning deadlines for independent parties is unconstitutional in violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendment of the United States Constitution. So it's the same legal issue in both cases. Based on my review of the of the decisions and the appellate briefs, I don't think it's worth tracking them independently and saying on oh, this one they're saying this and this one's saying the other because it's the same legal argument. And the state court case basically just followed the federal court case. So I'm going to focus more on the federal court side. Some of this has been reported on already by Jeff Kelly and the Buffalo News, and we've seen that the Anderson case, the Supreme Court, is really kind of what carried the day here. For anybody who's not familiar... All our listeners are are well-versed on their Supreme Court rulings, but but maybe for the one or two of them who, who didn't get around to it in con law class. Yeah, yeah. Well, like any lawyer, I won't actually read the case until there's a semi-entertaining reason to do so, and that happened in this in this scenario. So... In Anderson, this is the 1980 presidential election, and this guy Anderson wanted to get on the ballot on an independent party. And in the state of Ohio, they had a deadline for independent nominations, getting your petitions in, in March of the upcoming election year, March 1980. On the contrary, if you were running in a major political party, Republican or Democrat, you didn't have to get petitions in at all. Once the national primary was done, you're on the ballot in Ohio for, for president. So different rules for different types of candidates right off the bat. So this guy sues and says, this is an, an infringement on my First Amendment right of association. He sues with some supporters because you're allowed to get together with your friends, your like-minded citizens, and support somebody for office in a democracy. And, that's, and so that's 
The court finds that in the First Amendment right of association. So he sues. District court puts him on the ballot in Ohio. So he stays on the ballot. It goes up to the Court of Appeals, just like it's going to do in this case. But the state of Ohio does not seek a stay. The Court of Appeals reverses, says, you're off the ballot. Damn Court of Appeals. I knew it was them. <laughs> but but it doesn't matter because the election had happened like a year and a half earlier. Obviously, he lost. And then it eventually gets up to the Supreme Court in 1983. And the Supreme Court comes down and reverses the Court of Appeals and says, hey, you know what? This did violate his First Amendment right. He should be able to get on the ballot. That was way too early of a petitioning deadline. So what we've read about so far is New York State's petitioning deadline for independent parties is too early under the Constitution. That's basically the takeaway that we've read about. But what the Supreme Court said in that case was not necessarily that a certain amount of time is too early. They said you have to look at what they call a sliding scale and how much does this restriction burden the party that you're that is you know, claiming it burden. So in this case, the mayor and that so, case. So how hard right. up are you basically by this, right? Like right. how much, you, how much is the little guy getting screwed over here? That's, that's uh, my legalese mumbo jumbo here, BT. Yes. And it's, and so little guy is actually very important because the Supreme court, a lot of ballot restrictions, particularly in New York, but as we know, across the country, ballot restrictions are written by state legislatures. State legislatures are comprised of Republicans and Democrats. So typically, ballot restrictions are there to choke out the little guys. They're there to choke out the minor parties. We see this a lot in New York State. That was a lot of the the impetus to ban fusion voting, the increased voter threshold that would be required that under the commission that, that Cuomo appointed. I can't remember the specifics. Damn but Cuomo. But I knew it was him. There's kind of, So there's this, this kind of... Uh, tension that the federal courts and the Supreme Court is keen to, which is, all right, yeah, you got to regulate your election somehow, but at the same time, you can't be squeezing out these little parties. What the Supreme Court said in Anderson was minor parties are really important because, and they point to this other case that they decided that was an actual, a Thurgood Marshall decision, and he named the abolitionist party, the socialist party, and he said, these, you know, these are very important parties in our democracy, not because they win elections, they don't, but because they bring ideas which were once considered on the fringe into the mainstream. And so that's a quote that finds its way into Anderson. Right? I would love to I would love to know what what outside the fringe ideas that Byron Brown I'd like to know what ideas Byron Brown brings in general, even after being mayor for sixteen years. But I'd love to know what, what kind of outside the fringe that the 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 Brown Buffalo Party would well, offer. He's us. installing LED lights. Oh uh, street lights. Oh, right, that's, right, right. That's one. That's one. Yep. Mm. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Well, anyway, BT. Okay. So, so, so what the Supreme Court said in that case is if you have to get your petitions in to be on the presidential primary in Ohio in March, by that point, the party primary isn't even clear yet. So you're going to be going out asking people to sign your petition and the people who are signing it have no idea whether or not they're going to be satisfied with whoever's going to be coming out of the primary for the Republican or Democratic ticket. So, that's one issue. The other issue is in a presidential election or in any election, conceivably, things can change, issues can develop, and you basically need to save space for what the court calls a, a quote, a late emerging candidate. And so they say because of that, because you basically have to have all your petitions in order in March, way before the primary is determined, way before all these other issues could inform what's going on. And importantly, the major party candidates 
don't need to get their petitions at all. This is unconstitutional. This is severely burdening the rights of the person who's trying to get on the ticket and his supporters. There's a lot of language in these in these court cases about the state interests. And basically what that means is if you have a severe burden of a constitutional right, the court applies what's called strict scrutiny. That means it has to be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest. That whole part of the analysis is basically worthless because once you trigger strict scrutiny, it's unconstitutional almost always. You know how I feel about that. Yeah. I don't I, like it. I don't, I don't like, like it. that one. I don't like it. One, you know what? If the scrutiny is not strict quiet, enough, but. I, you know, I, I'm getting real fired up here about a lot of things. I Court of <laughs> Appeals, uh, Andy Cuomo, yeah. strict scrutiny. Like this is the news in general. The news in general. I'm, I'm coming to a boil here. <laughs> All right. Bring it. Bring us home on okay, this BT. So yeah. we'll, we'll bring it home. In New York, there are basically two ways to get on the ballot. Plus, three ways to have your supporters vote for you. You can get on the ballot on an independent party line. You can get on the ballot by petitioning to get into a party primary, then winning the primary. Those are the two ways to get on the ballot. And then you could also have people vote for you like the mayor started doing, which is a write-in campaign. They can vote for you that way. In New York, unlike what happened in Ohio, where the major party candidates didn't even have to turn petitions in at all, here, everybody's got a petition if you want to get on the ballot. If you want to get on the ballot for the primary... You got a petition well in advance of the independent party petitioning deadline. Once the, the primary petitioning is done, those candidates are set. Anybody can look and say, hey, so-and-so is running in the primary. So-and-so else is running in the primary. I don't like my choices here. Let's go ahead and nominate Re on the, on the independent snake pit party line. Yeah. Ooh, I like the sound of that. <laughs> yeah. So you have that option in New York where you can actually assess, hey, this is what the landscape is going to look like coming out of the primary. We know who's going to win the primary, but we know who's running. But there's a deadline for that, too. There's a deadline for that, too. But it comes after the primary candidates are set. It doesn't come after the primary, but it comes after the primary candidates are set. It seemed like that'd be in line with the Supreme Court decision. You would think it would be, because what you're trying to figure out is, are these supporters of an independent candidate or an independent candidate itself, are they severely burdened by this restriction? And here, and New York is actually unique, because not only do we have that you know, those two options, but you can do both. So you could say, you know what, I'm going to run in the Democratic primary, but just because I know there's some people who don't like voting Democrat, I'm also going to get on the ballot through my other party line. Like Cuomo, for example, had an independent party nomination of the Women's Equality Party, famously. Oh, yeah. yeah. Famous, (laughs) famous advocate. Famous famous advocate for women's equality. Ironically, Andy Cuomo. Uh So... Does it severely restrict the independent candidate's path to the ballot in New York State? I don't think most people would look at that and say that severely restricts it. And actually, that wasn't exactly the, the analysis that, that I was able to, to glean from Judge Sinatra's decision either. And I will say, too, it, I'm not trying to pile on the judge here because... Oh, we'll pile on yeah, well, we, we got <laughs> Leave that, that to us. That to you guys. <laughs> you know, to be fair, election law cases do not come down in Buffalo or the Western District of New York very often. Yeah. And... I think there were something like 50 pages of briefs filed, you know, the night before Friday the 3rd. So it's a lot to expect a a judge to be able to get through and get all these issues clarified overnight, literally. So what what, what exactly did he decide? Did he decide that? So there were a couple interesting things that he pulled out of the Anderson decision, which the mayor's supporters, they were the parties in the federal court case. They pointed to the fact that the mayor garners substantial support in the community. Right. 
And they also pointed to the fact that there was a late emerging development in this campaign, which are two things that the Supreme Court kind of talked about in Anderson. But what they said in Anderson was, here are the things that might happen if you kick these people off the ballot. You might have intervening issues that all of a sudden leave room for a new candidate who wasn't there at the beginning. But, you know, because the Russians attacked all of a sudden, we might need to consider a new candidate that wasn't fronting that position. But at the Byron Brown had been considered. He was the mainstream candidate, a major party line, and he was considered. He, I mean, he, he lost right, the primary. Right. He lost the so. primary. And more importantly, he didn't try to get on any other lines right. before this. Like, he didn't try to hedge his bet. You know, he didn't even plan to have a competitive primary. Yeah. Like, the guy had every opportunity in front of him to be on the ballot. He could have easily ginned up another party line. He could even probably gotten like the conservative line or something. Right. Right. And so what Judge Sinatra decided is he basically grabbed onto two things. One, he took this line from the Supreme Court, which said, which is kind of like an offhand hypothetical that was part of a sentence in the Supreme Court opinion, which is, you know, you might be not leaving room for a candidate who could develop substantial support in the community. The Supreme Court never said, look, if you want to figure this out, figure out if this candidate has substantial support in the community. And if he does, you put him on the ballot. That's not what they were saying. What they were saying is, you know, look at all the bad things that could result from keeping these people off the ballot. Somebody might have a lot of support, but they won't be on the ballot. What ended up happening in this case was Judge Sinatra went through the numbers from 2017 and said, oh, there were 29,000 votes for Mayor Brown in Buffalo. Therefore, he has substantial support in this community. Therefore, he meets that test in Anderson and should be on the ballot. The other thing that he, which wasn't actually what the Supreme Court said should be analyzed. The other thing that, that he kind of grabbed onto that the mayor's attorneys brought to his attention was that this question of a late emerging candidate who responds to developments in the campaign. And if we sit here and think about it, what were the developments? <laughs> the one development the was that he lost. Yeah. And the development was that he lost. Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> oh, and, God. Oh, no. Give him the whistle. Oh. And so, and what the, and the other thing that Judge Sinatra pointed to was a development which leads to candidates outside of the mainstream and a candidate emerging from the party primary outside of the mainstream. And basically that you need to have an independent party process to respond to that if that happens. But that test is really nowhere in Anderson. And actually what the Supreme Court said in Anderson was pretty much the opposite. They said minor parties are really important because they bring issues that are outside the mainstream into the mainstream. They weren't saying what you need to do is have a mainstream candidate in order to have a good election. That's that's nowhere in, in the Supreme Court case. And then the other point that I would make is there's this conclusion that's just kind of accepted that the Democratic nominee is outside of the mainstream. Well, what would be a good test to see if what's in the mainstream? Maybe a, an election. Maybe a primary election. <laughs> Maybe involvement in the what? political party, like yeah. where he was literally the, the Dem Party chairman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and if, At one if, point. if the conclusion is the loser of the Democratic primary is outside is inside the mainstream, but the winner of the Democratic primary is outside of the mainstream, what does the mainstream mean? Because mainstream to me means what's most popular. Yeah. What's most popular? Who won the election? Mm -hmm. But mainstream to the people who are using the term mainstream, I think means something different. It means candidates that we're used to. Right. It yeah. means, you know, quote unquote establishment candidates. So the thing that I see that is potentially troublesome from this decision, and I don't know 
if it'll hold. And again, this is a decision that, that he had to make in the span of 24 hours. So I, I'm not, you know, trying to be too critical of it, but the problem I see with it is you're essentially creating a scenario that says, look, if something unexpected happens in a primary and by unexpected, we means an insurgent candidate wins. Well, then in that case, you have to override the ballot laws yeah. and you got to get a mainstream candidate on. Seems very anti-democratic to me. Uh, seems extremely yeah. anti-democratic. Uh. And, uh, and by the way, you know, for our listeners, I mean, listen, sometimes we give you the candy. We'll give you the candy. Well, when we talk about the mayoral debate, we'll definitely give you some more of the candy. Um, but, you know, you got to eat your vegetables. But for your for your head cannon, I just would like all of our listeners to imagine uh, a giant troll-like figure with a monocle and a three-piece suit on mm-hmm. talking very eloquently about uh, about election law. Mr. Troll. Mr. Troll. Esquire. The last thing that I think is an important takeaway from Anderson is the Supreme Court talks in that case about there's been discussion of sore loser laws. A sore loser law traditionally is a law that a lot of states have in the books. New York does not. That says if you lose your your party's primary, you can't appear on the ballot, period. You're 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 banned. Basically, Mm -hmm. we don't have that. You can still you can lose your party's primary and and be on the ballot on an an independent line or or a minor party line uh, because we have fusion voting. I think if you're looking at someone and it doesn't have to be this race and you know in particular but if you lose a primary that you were expecting to win and then you want to get onto an independent nomination i think we're probably looking at that type of that type of candidacy yep yep yeah no look i mean it it, it stinks the high heavens all around okay and it's like look i'm not <laughs> i'm not discounting that there might be some kind of uh shall we say malfeasance with with uh Judge Sinatra. I, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, okay? Uh, allegedly, parody. Whatever the one that is protects me from getting my ass sued in court. We're just joking around. We're just telling jokes. We're just having a good time. But, I mean, look, put put all that aside. I, again, I'm no lawyer. I'm no big city lawyer, okay? <laughs> but, I, but I will say, like, it seems... Uh, here's the fancy word specious. Specious oh. reasoning. And, yeah, okay, the guy had 24 hours to review all this stuff. Whatever, dude. It, it, it offends the sensibilities, right? You look at a guy like Byron Brown, who had, again, all the time and all the resources to legitimately get on this ballot. And, and this is to address a lot of the people who might say, well, shouldn't the voters of Buffalo have a choice? Why shouldn't Byron Brown be on the ballot, you know, giving everybody in Buffalo a fair choice? Well, the problem is, in order to get a chance at being one of those choices, you have to put in a measure of work to show that you are a serious person, a serious candidate. You do that by winning a, a primary. You know, you 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 become a party's Ad, nominee. Adding yourself on multiple party lines. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but if the guy who wants to continue to be mayor can't even do the work of winning his primary or if he wants to be on another line, if he can't get... On that line, like if he didn't prepare for this contingency, he's a loser. Yeah. <laughs> this person is not, he's not serious. Yeah. It's it just, it is representative of who Byron Brown has been as an, an elected official, as mayor of Buffalo, where he really hasn't done much that you can point to as actual work. He's just kind of existed there. His opponents have, by and large, not been ones to really push him in, in a way that was in any way critical. So we've got this uh, stay that happened this week. Yeah. So the Court of Appeals. There's actually there's or appellate court. It's kind of interesting. 
there's basically two parallel orders that came out of these two cases. They're both ordering the same thing, essentially the same thing. One in state court, one in federal court. One thing that I can't really figure out is typically courts follow this principle called abstention. Uh, and there's like a couple other names for it. But if you have the same issue being litigated at the same time in a different court, usually when I've seen it, courts won't allow that to, to basically go forward because they don't want conflicting decisions. They also don't want you using more judicial resources than are necessary to resolve whatever you know problem you have. And we mentioned last week in this particular situation, it goofs up the electoral process. Like oh, crazy, yeah. Sending yeah. out ballots, having to resend them out if they have to be changed because of this whole ordeal. Right. And so the other thing that doesn't make any sense is you have now, okay, you have an order from state court judge, trial court judge saying, certify the ballots with both names on them. You have an order from a federal court judge saying, certify the ballots with both names on them. Then you get an order from an appellate court on the state side that says, do not follow the state court order. But it's the same order as the federal court. So basically the board of elections is, what do we do here? We have one court ordering us to do one thing, another court ordering us to do another thing. And I know that late, late last week in federal court, they were they were in there for a conference because the mayor's attorneys were talking about potentially moving for contempt on the board of elections for not certifying the ballot with both names on them. But um, I, that didn't happen. But that's the kind of quandary that basically results. And I can't figure it out for the life of me how we ended up with two of these orders, because the bigger in addition to basically st- staying out of each other's courts, the once it got to the state court, the federal court order was already in. So the whole point of going to a court on a on an emergency basis for temporary restraining order is basically saying, you know, look, without this, we're screwed. We need this order right now or else we're going to be severely and irreparably injured. But by the time it got to the state court for the hearing, the federal court order was in. So I can't really figure out why the state court proceeding even went forward, because at that point, they had already gotten the relief that they were looking for. There was no need really for the hearing. So, you know, and again, like I said, I I think a lot of this is new territory for our local bench. Like these election law cases, we're not Pennsylvania. We're not Wisconsin. We're not the site of a lot of these last minute election law battles. So I think a lot of the stuff is is just frankly new. Mm-hmm. But are we, I, head, are we headed for our own hanging Chad situation? <laughs> we might be hanging because Chad. we really have the listeners will not know. Yeah, what you're talking we truly really might be because it's also been reported that if there are two names on the ballot, a write in vote won't count because right. but there's some legal commenters out there saying, well, yeah, that's what the law says. But would that really be constitutional? Would that hold up in court? And frankly, it doesn't really make any sense to me that it would, because if you can tell somebody's trying to vote for one candidate and they wrote it down. I don't really know why you would throw that vote out. But before we leave this topic, I will say a few years ago, actually, I think it was only two years ago, in 2019, there were a number of challengers on the Common Council, female challengers, who were trying to run in the Democratic primary in the Common Council. I think there were four or five of them. And what happened was, you know, you have to submit X number of petitions from registered Democrats to get on the ballot for the primary. They went out, they got more signatures than they needed. They had them witnessed by a Democratic Party member, just like they were required to. They turned them in right on time. And what ended up happening was on those petitions, the witness to the signatures in his little notary block where it says, my name is so-and-so. It's supposed to say, my name is so-and-so. I'm a member of the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. and I witnessed the foregoing people you know, execute their signatures personally on such and such a date, whatever. He executed that, but on that particular version of the petition, it left out the words, 
I'm a member of the Democratic uh, Party. Right. It just said, I reality. saw these people execute this, you know, these these petitions and they signed it themselves. All that was just as it's supposed to be. And he was a member of the Democratic Party, but the Board of Elections said, uh-uh-uh, it's supposed to say I'm a member of the Democratic Party on the petition itself. And they threw those candidates off the ballot. It went to court. They didn't win at the trial court level. The judge basically said, look, the law says what it says. You didn't include that little blurb. I have no choice but to kick you off the ballot. And it went up to the fourth department and the appellate division. Same thing. So rules is rules. Rules is rules was basically the reaction. And yeah. so what I think is an uneasy takeaway is that we're seeing potentially, and I'm not saying this is going to be the the scenario in every case but we're seeing challengers held to a pretty exacting standard when they try to get on the ballot but we're seeing folks who've been on the ballot for a long time basically going to court and the court saying well you know we can make an exception here because these are exceptional circumstances and essentially no one expected this result from the primary and that analysis seems to me to be basically the opposite of what the Supreme Court is saying in these ballot cases like Anderson. It's going to be interesting how the actual legal fight plays out on this, you know. And and India Walton is, is obviously leading the charge on, on her end. You know, I, I know she's fighting it in court. And, and, and again, it makes sense why from a tactical standpoint. I will say you have to tread lightly. You have to thread the needle on that because you don't want to look like you're not giving the voters a choice Basically, you want it to to be something where like, well, this is a fair election. My opponent had a chance to do this and he should have done it then. And and to her credit, you know, much like much of how she's carried herself throughout this campaign, especially in the mayoral debate, uh, India Walden has been very graceful in, in handling, you know, uh, the, the case for why Byron Brown should not be on the ballot. I, th- I think you're right that you have to kind of tread carefully and that. I- one of the things that I, I didn't watch the whole debate, but I saw a part of it where there was a question of, you know, I, I think India Welton said something like, you know, every other election has stopped at the primary. Basically, you should give up or something along those lines. Well, why and, am I up here with you? Yeah, is what she's I think so. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, Which I, that was a real fist pump moment for it me. Was, I don't know about you guys. It was, but, uh, I'm sure yeah. it was a crowd pleaser, yeah. you know, for her supporters. But I think, right. like you said, Ree, you got to be kind of careful with this stuff because there is an election in November. Yep. And the mayor does have every right to run however he wants sure. if he if he runs as a write-in candidate or if he runs you know if he's successful getting on the ballot and frankly he's got every right to go into court and try to get on the ballot the reality is there is an election in november and and it's going to be contested and if and if you want to be mayor you got to be prepared to win both elections and i think it might be that every other mayoral election in recent memory has stopped after the democratic primary but i think if mickey kern saw a path to victory in november uh, after losing the primary he would have taken it and just like any of these other, it has ended typically after the Democratic primary because the people saw the writing on the wall. That's yeah. not necessarily the case this year. So it's going to continue in November. And I think it would you know, behoove everybody to recognize that, hey, it's an election. It's just a general election and the rules are rules. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's get to let's get to the debate, yeah. shall we? Because. I, no, I I watched I watched about half of it. Um, I didn't I didn't watch it all in real time, but I did watch uh, some of it early today. I, I caught what I, I feel to be the most relevant and or funny moments. <laughs> about I got four this. words for you: laugh it up for a moment. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, laugh it up. Listen, you if so this might have been your first uh, introduction 
to India Walton, maybe. Probably not for our listeners, but for people in Buffalo or you know people who are interested in the mayoral race. Uh, certainly, you know Byron Brown. But we got to meet some other candidates, okay? <laughs> we got to meet some interesting gentlemen. Uh, ben Carlisle, who... Did he? he I, I mass libertarian. He, he came into the ring. Yes, yes. Team. He said he said he was a former Democrat, lifelong Democrat until the the lockdowns. Yeah, well, we, no, we, that, that there was room for an anti lockdown candidate. You know. Oh yeah, <laughs> the lockdowns and the protests. He seems like he was very pro police. Shaking in his boots about socialism, crocodile tears are running down his cheek. He, he was. He says he was at the protests. Okay. I think we need. I think we maybe need some video evidence. Yeah, we right, need yeah. to. We, yeah, we need to. <laughs> we don't know which side this. of the protest he was on. To be fair, Ben Carlisle, if you're there. listening to this, and I'm sure you are, because I, you strike me as one of those people who, if you find out your name is mentioned anywhere, you, you know, you will, you will listen to it. You'll be on it. We need you to explain. Were you at the protest? Were you not at the protest? <laughs> What's the deal, buddy? We need to know. So Ben Carlisle, we do know that he walks to work every day. Oh, the rain, Don't snow, forget sleet, comet storm, uh, and apocalypse. by that alone, he's going to get Buffalo to net neutral carbon. And I think what was the yeah okay that was net neutral. I wasn't sure if it was a that was an anti littering pitch or if it was well, a, maybe. okay that was <laughs> oh well <laughs> hey wait a minute BT anti littering you know what Jazz Miles the Republican candidate for mayor tells us that you know what. Why do we even care about global warming when we can't get people to stop littering? Okay. Yeah. Maybe if you picked up your trash every once in a while, then maybe Jazz Miles would care about the coming climate apocalypse. Mm -hmm. But until you know, until you don't clean up after yourself, well, we're not going to worry about global warming. If he's mayor, there'll be room in the budget for drones to take care of these litterers. I'm yeah, assuming yeah. execute them on the spot. Yeah, capital yeah. punishment. Yeah, right. Equipped yeah. Uh -huh. drones. Sure. Yeah. No, so, laser drones. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, what was what was amazing to me, and again, there you know, most of these debates hardly ever make any real, especially on like this local level. It just doesn't have the wide distribution. People aren't watching it on television with eyes glued. Um, it was actually kind of hard to find it on the internet. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure it was on over the air on local TV. No, Maybe on some obscure channel, but not on the main ones. Right, so they made it hard to watch. You know, I watched a YouTube replay of it later on. Yeah. So it's, you know, again, most of, this, most of this shit doesn't matter with the debates, but I will say the real thing that if you're an Indy Walton supporter, which which we are, that you wanted to watch out for is to make sure she didn't say anything that would be injurious to her campaign. She, she, she cemented her position as the Democratic. Exactly. Yeah, candidate. she didn't hurt for herself. Sure. Mm -hmm. And that's all she really needed to do coming out of this. She needed to look like she was a serious candidate. You know, and, and she and she did. There were a couple of times where the mayor looked like he got caught with his pants down, like the environmental question, fumbling over. A lot of ums in that re response from him. Well, there was the big LEDs and whatever. Right, the LEDs. Said. There was also the big fight over the two houses. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. The the fight over whether or not uh, the the community land trust, if they actually built the houses. Byron Brown said no. Indy Walton said, "What the hell are you talking about?" He didn't have much to go on. I think that was about it. Yeah, he didn't really have a light to stand on with that truth but be told. He did have two zingers uh, in regards to Jazz Miles, and I will give him credit for that. I think uh, the one that I remember right now is the, um, I haven't met Jazz before this, and I hope to never meet him again. So. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he got him there. He nailed him. I well, got to give him that one. 
I, well, I know at one point. So Jazz Miles started out by uh, giving us the the history of the oh, <laughs> the, Democratic the Democratic Party, Party. Oh, yeah, which is really disingenuous. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, it he's was giving the you like D'Souza version. He's yeah, right, giving you right, like right. the the 10th grade social studies yeah. class here, you know, and it's just like, okay, dude, we know what happened. Yeah. Like everybody knows what happened. Uh, and then at one point there was. Did, did he talk about the Taliban? Was he the one to, to do that? I think so. Well, he was very anti-refugee. Oh, there, that's so. right. He was the one. Yes. He was the one that said crime was caused in this community yeah. by refugees and that we need to make Buffalo not be a sanctuary Oof. city, which, it's hey, not. turns out it's not. So, yeah. I do douche. love that, that like, criticism of the Democratic Party for its segregationist past, which is obviously abhorrent, but it's like, it's always told as if, the, the, the person who's saying it, like Jazz Miles here, or who, whether it's him or Dinesh Souza or, or Candace Owens or Ben Shapiro or whatever, it's always as if they're delivering this news for the first time. <laughs> right, like, yeah. oh, <laughs> you want to learn something about the Democratic Party? Uh-huh. I bet you didn't know. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, well, do you see any pro-segregation Democrats around? Like, this is this is not, this, yeah. is, so, this is such... Yeah, we there get might it. be they some have a out terrible there, history. But, uh, yeah. well, I, I think Jazz Miles did he drop a Robert Bird at one point? It was yes. Did he did yes. he talk about Robert Bird? I mean, come on, man! Like we we live in the twenty first century. Now. Robert Bird, whose whose ghost does haunt the Senate? Because oh, yeah. for sure. Supposedly, yeah. I think I read some profile. You know, wasted some time in my life reading some profile of Joe Manchin, and he <laughs> uh, is remains most heavily influenced by Robert Byrd, who was like, oh Lord. obviously a former Ku Klux Klan member and was like, the most important thing in the world is following the, the Senate rules. And yeah, you know, gotta love the rules. <laughs> rules, rules is rules. We know what the Senate rules are there for. Right. Yeah, no, we, uh, I mean, look, you didn't get it again. You don't get much out of that debate in general, other than for our purposes, India Walton looked good as you know as a poised candidate as somebody who everything else was entertainment value yeah it was all you had the heel and jazz candy. miles you had the goofiness with the sign that kept falling down yeah the that slapstick was, yeah the slapstick yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah that was all right there was a, it yeah, had everything there was a significant parks and rec vibe to it. <laughs> yes i will i mean i will say i wish if you're gonna go down this route of oh we're gonna have a debate like actually have it on tv you had Claudine Ewing was one of the the moderators. Al Vauder uh, was like the host right. of the debate. So like you have television personalities, you know, you could have actually put this on TV somewhere. People would be interested. People are interested in this race instead of having it be on some obscure stream somewhere. Yeah. To be fair, I think it was Indy Walton who declined the October debate, which was going to be aired yeah. on TV. That's true. With uh, what, what, what's his nuts? Uh, this Channel Four guy. I don't know what the hell his name is. Some dickhead. Yeah, McGee. I don't know. Yeah, that's him. We don't need. <laughs> yeah. we, we don't need. need a, we don't even need give him the time of day. Him. Anyway, so that is the mayor's race. We well, went one more oh. thing. One oh. more thing. Mister Troll over here says he knows who Furball is. Who's Furball? And are they actually furry? They are not. Fur- they're not furry. Actually, a lovely person. Mm-hmm. I won't say who it is right. to protect yes. the furball. Right. Uh, not furry. <laughs> quite lovely. Metaphorical um, furball. Yeah. <laughs> metaphorical furball. I don't know. Maybe a fur coat. I'm, I'm Where in God's name did furball come from? But uh, yeah. Was well, it supposed to be a Star Wars reference? I don't know. That's what the esteemed Rob Galbraith said. Okay. Okay. And then, to <laughs> you know, Rob did say, before you nerds try to correct <laughs> me, and then he corrected himself as to the actual 
<laughs> and I was like, well, who's, who's the nerd here, Rob? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, Rob, but, Rob, Rob's the Chad, okay? Yeah, exactly. Chads yeah. correct themselves. Yeah. Ner- nerds, but, nerds bite at others. The other last point I made about I would make about the the race and the and the court case is the Walton campaign got Roberta Kaplan's firm to sign on. Yes, that's big news. And the Board of Elections hired a, a litigation, a constitutional law litigation boutique out of DC. And the mayor has whose last name escapes me, Jerry Goldfeeder, I think. And he's from Struke, the Struke Law Firm. I think I pronounced that right. I'm not sure. In New York City, as well as this attorney, Brian Sells from Atlanta, Georgia, who's former DOJ, civil division. So these are big time lawyers. I think you can comfortably ballpark all of their hourly rates at around $1,000 an hour. Holy shit. So I think we're talking for both sides at well into the six figures for both sides for this battle. So I don't know what that means in terms of their fundraising, if this yeah. is totally breaking the bank for both campaigns or one of them. But this is some some crazy money being spent on this on this battle, which, to be honest, I'm not even sure if, if it makes all that much of a difference. Buffalo Party versus <laughs> right. right in. I, right. I, I don't yeah, know. Seriously. But, yeah. Well, it seems like it, it matters enough, you know, mm-hmm. uh, enough to Byron Brown to just it's, it seems to be a, just kind of a proxy battle at this yeah. point. But yeah. some major, major money being thrown at this thing. A lot of money. A lot of money. We're, we're here. You know, we're we're talking about politics and. Yeah. I, I will also tread a little lightly because because the seat in question, the assembly district, that a Republican challenger might be rising up. It may be we may be seeing a Rioth, we we've got Mike Caputo on his resurgence tour, his rehabilitation tour. Oh yes. Oh He's we should sure He's reformed. Well, he never actually apologized for anything. He he never apologized, but he sure got the hell out of New York and went to Florida. But he's thinking about coming back. He's coming back, folks. He's coming back. And guess what? Do you know why? Why is that? He's looking to take over Patrick's district. He wants to take down our boy Pat. Patrick, (laughs) full disclosure listener, co-host Jim is a... An employee, colleague, whatever. I don't know how the proper nomenclature for what he does, but he works for Pat. Right. So we are biased with a capital B. Okay. We are in the freaking tank. But guess what? We tell you that we're in the tank. All right. Unlike the Buffalo Snooze. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, some some Buffalo News writer, I, I don't know if she's being like tongue in cheek or not, but she's like, oh, can't wait to listen to this about the snooze. It's like, yeah. Zeree's words. They're also mine. They're my words, and yeah. I will say them to your face, right. and I will say them to Lou Michelle's <laughs> face, and I, I promise you, I will, I will, I will say anything that I have to say on this podcast to you publicly in in front of you. Oh sure, but yes, we are in the tank for Pat. Okay, but even if we weren't in the tank for Pat, uh, yeah, I am going to support anybody that Mike Caputo's running against. Mm, All I'd right, be, the th- I'd be in the tank for egg salad sandwich against Mike Caputo. Well, egg salad sandwich, you get the right. Anyway, you get a little paprika on there. It's actually yeah, yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's hard, it's hard to screw that sandwich up. Egg salad sandwich is a much better candidate than Mike Caputo. Yeah. All right. I don't know the hubris on this guy uh. to think he can just stroll right in. Dude, you as a Republican, you're already, already going to have to deal with people saying, oh, you know, trying to tie you to Donald Trump and his failures of his, of his administration. Mike Caputo, right. you were... In that administration, (laughs) you were the fail, fail, yeah, 
Brothers. It's like uh, Step Brothers. I, I just want to call it Jagaloons. Um, we talked about it last week a little bit, how there might be some secret unspoken schism in the local Republican Party. That might be a reason why Mike left, but he seems to be trying to inject himself back into it. And I'm not sure a candidate of that ilk can win around here in that type of district. No. Sometimes no. leans conservative, but, you know, they're not hard, right? He's kind of one of those guys who he doesn't have a face for TV. He doesn't have a, <laughs> he doesn't have a face for being the candidate himself to me. Yeah. He has a face for being... He's in the shadows. The attack dog. Not, and not even, not even looks-wise, right? Just like his, his profile is like a, his personal political beliefs or his involvement in the Donald Trump administration. Like, I think you could see him as like the Svengali behind the scenes. But... Right. Which is probably all overblown anyway, but... Right, right. But I mean, like, you, you got to know your role, all right? Chris Grant, to his credit, is not the guy who's running for office. He's t- taking the checks from the schmucks who are running for office. Um, so Caputo, like if you, if he was doing an analysis of a candidate, you do the pros and the cons and like the cons just severely outweigh the pros for that guy. To be fair, he is a guy who loves having his name in the paper, loves having his name in the news. And he might just be kind of bored in Florida and was like, <laughs> You know what? I'm going to call Bob McCarthy and tell him I'm thinking about running for Pat Burke's district. Maybe the heat's <laughs> getting to him. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, just something for him to do. I mean, let's not forget, like others in this room, the man is a troll. Oh, he yeah. is just a pure troll. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think anyone should take anything he says with any degree of sincerity because 99 times out of 100, he's doing it for attention. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we'll see. I don't actually think he's going to run. He might, but you know what? He is such a troll that he might do it despite us. He might listen to this podcast and say, you know what? I am going to run now, and I'm going to shove it in those jokers' face, mm-hmm. in which case I say, go for it, Mike. <laughs> Dude, would you like to put a wager? Ooh. Five dollars. Oh, I was going to say one dollar, like the classic trading places bet. One dollar. One dollar, Mortimer. All right, and what are you? What, what position do you take? I'll take the opposite. I'm going to say, okay. Well, there's two things here. Does he run? And then if he runs, does he win? I'm just. Does he run? Uh, does he run? Okay, he I'm going to say he does not. I'm going to say he does run, and I hope he does because that's going to be a lot of content for our podcast. Uh, oh, ton, oh my god, tons of content! Can't wait for it. Although you're talking about a guy who fancies himself some kind of like Steve Bannon type character. Steve and, Bannon from the Wish app, right? And you're, I mean, <laughs> Mike, you're down in Florida. Trump's, he's getting ready for his 2024 bid. DeSantis is getting ready for his 2024 bid. Best you can do is run for some fucking assembly district in New York. That's like a pretty pathetic You've fallen down his, the chain, my yeah, friend. Yeah, like, like you. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you, you fell off. Mike, you fell off. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see what's in store for the erstwhile Mr. Caputo uh, moving forward. In the world of labor news, we're, we're on the labor beat because, you know, it, it happens. It's happening here. We've got a couple big developments. One, yeah. the CWA workers, I, I think they did decide to strike. Yeah, sounds that way. Yeah, they did the safe staffing. The, the safe staffing with the nurses. They decided we can't do it. You know, we're not getting paid enough for this shit. Cough it up. So they they're they're going on strike. Good on them. Yeah, you know, I look. I don't know enough about the world of staffing and nursing. I have friends who are nurses. I know nurses. I assume that working in any medical field right now in the middle of COVID has to be just completely dreadful. And you are probably not getting paid enough to do that job. Well, I think there were safe staffing issues even before COVID. 
if you know a nurse, if you are a nurse or you're in the medical profession or know someone who is, even if you just support them because you've had a, a, a family member or loved one in the hospital and you're, and you're like, well, this is, this is bad. There, there's no one around. It's not the nurse's fault. It's because there are not enough of them on any given yep. shift. Support the strike. Go pick it with them. Bring them donuts. Bring them coffee, pizza. Yeah. The nurses, they stitch you up. Everybody More, knows a nurse. Everybody loves a nurse. Like, come on. Most importantly, we're podcasting about it, which creates the most change in this yes, world. That's yes. Yes. Service yeah. in its own right. Semper Pod. Yeah. Uh, Semper Pod. Semper Pod. So we will keep fighting the good fight from the basement in the comfy chairs. Uh, so we have the CWA strike. And then we have two more Starbucks locations here in Buffalo mm. are joining the unionization push. Mm-hmm. We had a big wig from Starbucks corporate. Yeah, the corporate dogs are coming down. They're sending in the mandatory anti-union meetings for everyone. They're sending them in. They're sending them in. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you love your PSLs, do you know what PSL is? Uh, Was it like the personal personal seat license? Oh, (laughs) no. Pergula Sports and Leisure. Leisure. (laughs) Pergula Sports and Leisure. Guys, it's pumpkin spice lattes. Come on. Oh, oh. Pumpkin spice lattes. If you love your PSLs, support this strike too. Yeah. Well, they haven't they haven't technically gone on strike yet, right? Oh, that's they're trying to form. They're trying to form a union. Snakes had a long day. Yes. No, I mean, look, it, it is very rare for Buffalo to be so heavily on the map in terms of like this unionization and this labor movement type of stuff. Buffalo is pretty well established as a long time union town, I would say historically. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the, I would say the neo labor movement, you know, like the, the, the big pushes we've seen maybe like in Seattle or California, we really haven't seen a lot of that here. So for it to involve like such a major corporation and a unionization effort, like it's a big deal. And it's it's something that shocker the Buffalo News has not really covered yeah. at all. I wonder why. I wonder why that would be. Ha. Hmm. Ha. <laughs> I'm at a loss for why that might be. But no, we're covering it because we're the actual news source around here. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, that's an investigative post. Uh, us, yeah. us, us, and, us, and Jeff Kelly, that's basically. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's that's who it comes down to. It's uh, we're the two actual news sources here. <laughs> well, we're the guys who read the actual news sources jeff is the actual news source we're just the guys who make jokes about it i'm i'm curious to see where this goes being a barista not not like being a nurse but also a very difficult job and uh, i'm sure most of our listeners know and or love a barista so essential service for me dude i need my coffee in the morning you know it's an interesting time because there is a you know a labor shortage and so on the corporate side of things they're they're not in the usual position that corporate America is, which is we'll close, we'll close this place yeah. up, open a new one tomorrow. Who right. cares? No skin off our back. Yep. They can't do that. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I think that the side effects of COVID they're, they're going to run very deeply in our culture for, uh, for a long time. Who knows how many decades really we, we could be feeling this, but we lost human beings. COVID took away a lot of, but it took away actual bodies. It took away people. It took away uh, labor and, and actual staffing. And if you think about it demographically, like who was impacted? Well, I mean, it was probably people. I, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but I'm just going to hazard a guess who are lower on the socioeconomic scale who couldn't afford medical treatment or, you know, might have already been prone to being sick or whatever, what, what have you. And a lot of people in that state probably work at jobs that are like baristas you know that are that are low-paying wage jobs and shift jobs like basically these are the people that uh, i I, i'm just fucking 
twisting in the wind here. But what I'm trying to say is, go go poor, go. Go. poor yeah, people. Yeah. Well, poor people <laughs> Dude, died. <laughs> poor people died. I'm hungover. You know, I'm oh, like yeah. half. Oh man, I'm I'm yeah. I'm beat up. I'm beat up. But poor people died in COVID. Right. All right. Sure. And that took away a lot of the the workforce. We're we're dealing with the ramifications of that. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. Be nice and tip. Tip. Yeah, definitely tip. Support labor. These fucking assholes who don't tip. I hate, you know, I Even hate, if there's no tip jar, give a few bucks. I hate tipping. I hate I hate the concept of tipping. I wish I paid more for my product. Right. I wish it reflected accurately right. what needed to be paid. Wouldn't it be so much easier it? if we knew everyone got a living wage and we just paid what the cost was for that? It I is just, a strange dance we do. Yeah, it is. Oh, God. Well... I don't know how to segue this from tipping. Usually I'm on top of my game, but today we're tipping to the next subject. No, no, no. You know what? Whoa. We're going to use some of those Buffalo billions. Oh, and we're going to tip our baristas with them. Sounds good to me. Yes. The Buffalo billions. Oh, Ooh. yeah. Just, I, I imagine like big gold bricks, you know, in a vault somewhere. The Buffalo billions. We had some convictions. BT, you got any, you got any take on this? You know, to be honest with you, I, I didn't read the opinion. I'm not surprised they upheld the conviction. You know, one of the things that comes up in these cases is like what actual buying influence or whatever looks like. This was not a case where it was particularly hard to figure out. I mean, these guys were talking in not particularly coded code language. How many boxes of ZD? That kind of thing. It's a blight on the region. And it's and it's really an indictment of, you know, not just the criminality of this effort, but it's an indictment of basically what, what we've been doing as a as a state and regional economy for, you know, the past 20 years, which is chasing these pie in the sky, silver bullet projects, which almost never pan out, uh, never materialize in what they're promised as along the way, basically create these opportunities for criminality. And, you know, at best, maybe put a few bucks in a developer or a contractor's pocket and maybe serve as a, as a short-term ribbon cutting you know, opportunity for, for the governor or whoever, but this is, you know, these are huge amounts of public resources that are going towards these types of projects that we just continue to do over and over again against our better senses. And, you know, who knows, it looks like we're about to do it again with the, uh, with the new Bills stadium in Orchard Park, which yeah. at least, at least this time around, no one's kidding themselves. There's like, yeah, we, we know this isn't going to generate any economic benefit. We know that, but we're going to do it anyway. So for the love of the bills, love of the bills and finally i think bt we were talking a little bit before the show about the skajakwita project yeah so the skajakwita project as we all know the skajakwita expressway is uh skajakwita through our noses gotta get a little give it a little buffalo sauce the it connects the 33 and the 190 it's a what they call like a limited use highway and it bisects delaware park into two halves it literally occupies part of Skajakwita Creek, and it bifurcated, cut into Humboldt Parkway, a portion of Humboldt Parkway. Is your SAT word for the day? Yeah. Bifurcated. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to come up with a couple others for you, Ray. But <laughs> Please do. The, uh, you know, the rest of the Humboldt Parkway is on the 33, but um, obviously that was Olmsted's biggest parkway in Buffalo and was completely ruined by this, yeah. you know, Robert Moses urban renewal project. Because of the 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 fact that it goes through Delaware Park primarily, 
it's been a long kind of issue for people in the neighborhood who want to reunite the two sides of the park. And that kind of has been going on for many, many years, decades. A few years ago, obviously, there was a tragedy in Delaware Park when a, a child was killed by a car that came off the Skajakwita. The governor set about redoubling the efforts to look at a new plan for the Skajakwita. That came out a few years ago, and basically it was it was god-awful. It was only from Parkside until I think Elmwood or Grant. It didn't really change the fact that it was going to be a giant four- or six-lane throughway, essentially. It changed it to, like, Niagara Falls Boulevard rather than right. the Skajakwita Expressway, which, you know, is, it was actually going to be wider in spots than it already is. Yeah. So that was defeated through public opposition. Now, coalition of nonprofits, the Waterkeeper, Olmstead Parks Conservancy, Grant Amherst Business Association, Restore Our Community Coalition, which is uh, focused on Hamlin Park area and the, the devastation of Humboldt Parkway. A few others have come together to form this coalition, Skajakwita Corridor Coalition, and they've been working with GBNRTC, which is the transportation planner, to come up with a new plan. They said, you know, give us an opportunity to to take a hard look at this and come up with our own plan. So their plan is really, it's not about how do we reconfigure this road? It's basically how do we reconfigure this whole area? How do we figure out how to make Delaware Park work better? How do we figure out how to make Skajakwita Creek maybe a little bit more like the Buffalo River and mm-hmm. a place you could go, you know, take a paddle right. and go bird watching or whatever. Maybe a you know a place you could go open a restaurant and have a couple beers on the deck and overlook the water. Sure. So that was kind of the process. And now that they've come out with a plan, and if you go to their website, which we could throw up in the yeah, I'll find it. Yeah, it's uh, the Skajakwita Corridor Coalition and GBNRTC is calling it for some reason, Region Central, which is pretty obtuse or <laughs> impenetrable to me. Yeah, but right. <laughs> but if you look it up, you can see the renderings, and they're freaking amazing because, nice. you know, the Skajakwita Creek right now is, I don't know, like 30 feet wide, and maybe that's wide a spot, maybe 40 feet, 50 feet. But it was originally like a very wide body of water, and this plan sees the restoration of that kind of habitat. And so it's really pretty amazing to see these pictures. They're almost unrecognizable to see these renderings. So what, what they need is support from the community for this project because typically the voices that get heard most whenever these projects come out are like you know there's like a certain type of person who when they see like a bike lane or they see a person on a bike (laughs) they're just like oh here we fucking go there goes the neighborhood (laughs) Uh, they're getting in my way like they'll get like oh yeah even if they're not being slowed down at all they're in no way inconvenience just the sight of a bike lane will Uh just register like pure rage yeah in their you know adult brain and so those are the voices who end up being not the most numerous but the loudest mm-hmm. so they're the least chilled people so of course they're gonna complain the yeah, I mean, I, yeah right I, i'll uh-huh. never forget we're we're i was at a meeting for the prior skajakwita plan which was garbage and it did involve lowering the speed limit or, you know, making the lowering speed limit permanent. And pretty much everybody who got up to talk was saying, you know, this isn't what we want. We want bike infrastructure. We sure. want the park to be reunited, all this stuff. Oh, yeah. And People this guy, have been fighting for this stuff for years. Yes. Yeah. This guy got up, beat red in his face, and he basically, like, starts screaming at the rest of the crowd, like, I'm not in the minority. You're in the minority. I like to drive to the airport, and I like that it takes me 15 minutes. Yeah. And that is my right as a Buffalonian. I have that right. You don't need bike lanes. And he's like, like oh, ripping into God. into the rest of the audience as if they're like this troublesome, well, <laughs> spoiled minority who thinks that we should be able to like First of all, have our God signature forbid. park not cut in half. God forbid. <laughs> 
We can't ride our bikes in the city. God yeah. forbid. Yeah. I mean, most actual cities, a decent public transport to the airport. You don't have to drive yeah. there. Yeah. So it's like, maybe we should be able to ride our bike in the park. Yeah. I don't know. And I don't know if you guys have ever taken like the whole, the whole concept of these highways that we're stuck with now. I don't know if you guys have ever taken like Genesis Street out to get to the airport. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It adds like two minutes to your trip <laughs> compared to the 33. Yep. It's like, okay, yeah. that actually it's, made almost no difference. Not a big deal. In 1950, there was twice as many people living in Buffalo. Right. We didn't have the 33. We didn't have the 198. We didn't have the 190. Somehow everybody all got around. Let's get light rail to there. Yeah. Let's, let's throw it up. Yeah. So let's do it. Long and short of it is get on the GBNRTC website, get on the Jack with a quarter or quarter coalition website and, you know, register for updates or whatever, and then show up at these meetings when they have them. So you can say, hey, no, this actually is what we want. Because unlike the Buffalo Billion Project, uh, unlike a new stadium, this is something that could really be transformative for Buffalo for you know decades, decades to come. This is the real deal. It's the real deal. Support it. And do you think it'd be helpful if I went to these meetings and screamed red-faced? I think you have to. Okay. I think <laughs> <laughs> In opposition to the, to the NIMBYs yeah. who don't want bikers you know or bicyclists around. Maybe we'll have you as kind of a, you know, We'll have you as a false flag kind of thing, and yeah. you'll be oh. up there. You'll see the guy coming, and you, you're you going to look twice as mad. And you're going to be like, no, brother, I got you. I got yeah, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you're going to go up. <laughs> the Square Podcast, running false flag yeah. operations at public meetings. Yeah. We really are approaching peak parks and rec. I do not mind yelling in public. Yes. Trust me on that one. Yes, he's going to get red mad and nude yeah. in public and, <laughs> and, and start yelling. Well, gentlemen, this has been extremely fun. BT, thank you for joining us and and bringing bringing the heat, man. You really you really did the deep dive into the appellate briefings. You did the work. We always Thanks tell folks. I probably got it all wrong. I have no idea. You you know we we, we <laughs> I don't think so. You know we we I read the phrase on Twitter, right? Right? It sounded oh yeah. You sold me. You sold me. We yeah. we, we see the phrase on Twitter. Do the work. Okay. The work. Now, am I going to do the work? Well, you know, I'm doing well, this. Well, now you work. don't have to. No. I'm doing, I outsource it, okay? We bring I, the flavor. You are, are baking the dish there, BT, and we're just putting like the spice on top, mm, okay? I like that. We, we It's already delicious. We're just adding mm-hmm. just a little, little paprika, a little cumin. Old Bay. Old, ba- old yeah. Bay. Mm-hmm. Mm, I would like something with Old Bay on it now. Yeah. It's, been yeah. a, it's been a minute. Yeah. So just don't, don't go to Maine and buy a lobster with your credit card. Oh. I'm still hurting. It's, it's overpriced. I mean, it's good. <laughs> I, I've had I've had New England lobster. Uh-huh. I don't know, man. Giant it, insects. Giant insects out of the not water. for you. Not yeah. They giant, are gi- giant they are giant insects. insects, but I also love them. Okay. So, it's kind of a funny story. I thought I was allergic to to shellfish for a long time. I think that was wishful thinking because it turns out I'm not. I just <laughs> I just find them repulsive. But I we were going to go on a trip up to Nova Scotia. We we're going oh, to yeah. Nova Scotia, and obviously. A lot of seafood, a lot of lobster up there. Right. So I thought, you know, I think I'm allergic to selfish, but I should go get tested. Uh-huh. So I went and got tested and turns out I wasn't allergic. So, but the doctor said, you know what? We'll do a food challenge because we got to make sure that <laughs> it's my you know, kind of challenge. You've never had shellfish. So you don't have any allergens in your, you don't have the antibodies in your system. So you could still go up there and eat some and have a reaction, even though you didn't test positive for this allergy. So we got to do a food challenge. So he cooked lobster at his house and he brought it in and it wow. went to his office what? for like three hours. Yeah. But it wasn't like, I just he, given he you a gift card to red lobster. Get some cheddar. Biscuits, he, it's not you know? like yeah. you like served this thing with whatever, potato salad okay, and okay. butter. Yeah. It was like a hunk of cold lobster meat. And he oh. was like, okay, like first have a milligram, like, a, you know, the a spec you can't even see. And then yeah. we're going to wait 15 minutes and you're going to, you know, double that, whatever. And eventually 
we get to like half a pint or so. Mm. And he's just like, okay, now eat this. And it's like, you know, a full cup of just cold, <laughs> un- unseasoned, unbuttered, unseasoned, unsalted yeah. lobster meat just oh, crunching wow. on this oh. insect of the sea. Yeah. And I like choked it down. Didn't have a reaction yeah. other than a mental one. <laughs> and I was like that, you know, I was like, why, why would anybody eat this? fucking insect mm. well bro he <laughs> couldn't even get you any butter with that yeah. man come yeah, on no, that's just a bad first experience that is also an acquired taste yeah it's not for everyone yeah. anyway square podcast the number one podcast for lobster talk lobster talk stay welcome t- to lobster talk welcome to lobster talk the snake and re yes anyway stay tuned for our interview with john rivera uh jim held that one down quite nicely so you're in for a treat So uh, we're back, and we're with our, our guest this week, 149th Assembly District Assembly member, John Rivera. John, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome to the Snake Pit. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Uh, John is a Democrat who represents, well, what's your district? So it's the western part of the city of Buffalo, You know, pretty much all, all the waterfront, the first ward of Lackawanna, and then all of the town of Hamburg. Super unique, very mm-hmm. different. Yeah, and you're in your first term, correct? Correct. I'm nine months in. Yeah, yeah. nice. We got some questions for you. Yep. Um, deal, deal. We're going we're gonna to nail you with these questions. <laughs> All these go. Get ready. Tough, tough. Let's do it. We'll start off with, it's been our predominant news thing for the last six months. Yeah. Let's talk about the mayor's race. So No one seems to be tired of us talking about it. Not yet. yet. So. No. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's calling our office yep. telling us That's to right. stop talking yeah. about it. <laughs> so what led you to endorse India? Uh, do you think, was that more good government, good politics, or both? Honestly, I think it's, you know, uh, on the surface, it, might, it, it can come off as good politics, but truthfully, you know, India is somebody that I've known for years. Um, India is literally a neighbor, lives right down the street from me. And uh, frankly, I, I just think if there's anything that the primary night showed us in a couple different fronts and even in other parts of the country, people were just really eager for a change. Something mm-hmm. absolutely just, yeah. we needed something different. And, um, you know, it's not my nature to sort of, you know, Cause ruckuses, but, um, you know, coming out early to support India was was truthfully not a tough decision. I know her nature. I know her character. I know that things are, are said and and people are going to make things of, of hap- what had, what's happened years ago and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it takes a lot to run for office. It takes a lot to win a primary citywide. It takes a lot to put yourself out there that way uh, and get against an incumbent, against an incumbent of so many years. And, and at the end of the day... I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy she ran and I'm happy she won. And, and there has been no apprehension on my end to, to support India and, and do whatever I can for. So, and truthfully, I, it's, it's not just sort of a press conference of, Hey, I'm endorsing India, but it's, um, I've, you know, tried to get involved as much as I can on, on, on multiple fronts. Yeah. We've talked about on this show, um, a couple of times where people are saying like uh, other people from outside of Buffalo are saying that. It's mainstream Democrats working with Republicans to try to hold back the progressive candidate. And that's not true here in right. Buffalo. You've got 
basically one mainstream Democrat in the mayor who's untethered from Democratic, really from the party. Mm-hmm. He's been fairly independent for a long time. Yeah, he was chair of the state party, but I mean, locally, his reliance on ECDC and the committee has been very little. So it's it's not, and you're sure he's got a couple of council members who are with him, uh, but it's it's not what you've seen maybe in some other parts of the country where it was a concerted effort by the more central part of the, the party yeah. to try to hold back a progressive candidate. I, I, I feel like we, you know, with you and, and Sean has come out and endorsed India, we're seeing that the elected Democrats, the, the, the leaders of the party around here, are maybe not as vocally as some people might like, but are embracing India. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say, you know, Everybody who's, run, who's who's an elected official, whether you're mayor, or councilman, or school board member, or whatever, you know, it, everybody approaches that line of work differently, and everybody might want to approach the party differently. And my take on it, just in my own sort of campaigning and my own relationships and what have you, is you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a Democrat. I've been a registered Democrat my whole life. I believe in democratic values, not just you know locally, but you know nationally. And I think that there's Something to be said about an institution like a like a county democratic committee. It it means something. It's the body that's representative of the entire county. So, and in the case of here, in, in, across the whole city. So, what I feel on you know on Busty Avenue where I live might be different. What somebody might feel in Jefferson or in Genesee or in mm-hmm. Lovejoy or in Hurdle, right? And that's okay. That's how it should be. But the the city committee and, and, and the greater picture, the county committee is reflective of everything. So whether you're in Sardinia or Marilla or Concord, you have just as much vote as I do in this party. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it should be. So are, are, are county committees and county parties perfect entities? No, certainly not. But I, I'd say it's, it's the most reflective of a county democratic body that we could have. And it's done democratically i mean you you run and you either win or you don't win and you're a committee person in the party and you don't need anybody other than yourself to get some signatures and get on the ballot mm-hmm. so i i just think that you know there, there's a respect to a, an entity like that because it's it's that democratic so you know going to what you're saying i think that you know india's campaign showed if anything a refreshing approach to campaigning because it was a, a very democratic thing and that you know, it's not rocket science to win an election. You you knock on doors. You have to raise money, obviously, unless you're independently wealthy, which none of us, I don't think, are. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you run your race. You knock on doors. You make your phone calls. You send your mail. And you just try to get in front of as many people as you can. You try to turn out people to vote. And clearly she did that better mm-hmm. in the primary. And clearly, you know, she was an unexpected winner, I'd say, by the majority of people. Uh, but on election night, it was it was evident. Where a lot of campaigning and campaigners fail is that they rely on the same voters every year, every two years, every four years to just come out. But in a city like Buffalo that's in so much transition, that's just simply just changing the way it looks so much, and the fact that older voters are passing away or or people are relocating, you can't rely on that anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's what the election showed. Like An old approach to campaigning doesn't work. This requires, this new era of campaigning requires the candidates to be much more present much more approachable, much more authentic, much more sincere. By no means more polished, but certainly more, honestly, uh, real. I mean, it it doesn't seem seem being stiff and polished matters as much anymore. 
I don't know. There seemed to be a shift in the past five years. I, I don't know I what mean, could like, happen. <laughs> when we were growing up, we thought, okay, what does a senator look like? Right. And what does a congressman look like? And we we had this image of probably a, a tall, thin, Caucasian man with, mm-hmm. you know, salt and pepper hair or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. And someone distinguished by that understanding of what that meant then. You know, now when you think of what a senator or a governor or whatever looks like, it's not that. Right? Yeah. And that's a good thing. It's a welcome change, yeah, for me. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I grew up in the town of Lancaster, and... For my entire existence, basically, Dale Volker was a state senator. Mm, long time, yeah. I mean, he was state senator forever. Like, always had been, always would be, basically. So, in your head, that's a senator. And that's like, like <laughs> yeah, it was like three piece suit, yeah, like yeah. slicked back hair. When he was 40, he looked 60. When he was 60, he looked 60. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. just was always the same. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, salt and pepper hair, Caucasian. That's what a state senator looked like, as far as I knew. Sort of a non offensive looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. Milk like, toast. Pre- yeah, yeah, real milk toast. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, well, you know, that's another thing I'll say about the New York State Assembly, which is just an amazing body to be a part of, truthfully, because if you look at the State Assembly, there's 107 Democrats in the majority out of the 150. So it's, you know, a huge majority. And when you look at our side of the chambers, just in the actions of our day-to-day things there, it's it's got to be the most diverse legislative body in the country. I mean, not just in gender or in ethnicity or in religion, but in, in, in geography. I mean, just in every way imaginable. Well, and age, too. You oh, know, like, yeah. you know, people think of, especially in West New York, right? They, they, they think of, like, most of your state elected officials, those are career politicians they did something before that they moved up to that right. they're in their 40s or their 50s but if you actually look at like the western delegation they're not that old no, no. and if you look statewide no. there's a lot of people in like their 20s and 30s oh, yeah. who are state assembly members yeah, yeah. i mean the, uh, i came in in a freshman class of 18 members which is like a big it's not common but there's a, a lot of turnover this year uh, which is truthfully i think a good thing the majority of them are are younger i mean there's a good chunk of them are even younger than me i'm 35 and some of the younger ones are like 24 25 26 you're right it's not that they ran for this then ran for this and ran for this and then they eventually became state assembly members no they just they either took on incumbents that have been there too long or mm-hmm. they in the case of a handful they were empty seats and blah 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 but and it's super diverse i mean you know, just in my group of 18 five of us are, are of latino descent and even in that five people from ecuador people from peru people from puerto rico or or you know born here with family from puerto rico so it's it's, it's super diverse. And, and I think it adds to the sort of what I said before about being reflective of the county. Well, that's just reflective of, of, of the state. Right. It could only do better things for the people of the state of New York oh, yeah. to have a, a more reflective. It, it can only do body. better and it can only do more. Yeah. You know, when you only have when you're a representative body of that just looks a certain way, not to say that people that look a certain way can only care about A, B and C. But, you know, the the natural experiences that one goes through and lives and and just surrounds himself with as they grow and as they go to school and as they whatever. Mm-hmm. And that that's lost when you just have sort of a homogenous everybody sort of the same thing. Right. And it's like it's not like Ryan or I as a couple of Caucasian guys <laughs> couldn't be empathetic. Mm-hmm. But like, would we be the best representatives for like the Madison district in the city and the common council? There's got to be somebody better than yeah. us. I mean, and you know, I, I guess the other unique thing about the 149th, if I'd be able to say how, obviously, I think the 149th is the best assembly district in the history of assembly districts. But <laughs> uh, the reason I think it's sort of unique is that, oh, I'll say two things. One, the, the district is unique for one thing, but for, for at least my role in it is that I'm the first person of Latino descent to be a member of the state assembly majority west of New York City ever. 
and it says something about perhaps 15, 20 years ago, the idea of a, of a Puerto Rican representing Hamburg or, you know, yeah. somebody of my, necess- my ethnicity representing a district that truthfully isn't that Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, th- I think it's about 12% of, of the population of, of, of the district, which certainly isn't a majority. So if you look at that and you say, well, that's reflective of something, it means then that the idea that, oh, you know, if you're this ethnicity, you can only represent this kind of people. Or if you are from this neighborhood, you can only have that kind of job. I think that people, if, one, that voters are much more open-minded than, than we think. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe more so Democrats. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, it, it means that, you know, we're entering into, a, like I said, an era where people are looking at candidates differently. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I won Hamburg. Right. Yeah. So it just shows you like you you never know. One of my takeaways from what you just said is and and it was brought up in the mayoral debate Thursday. How do we promote civic engagement? And it seems like, you know, there's there's a perception that the the younger people are are apathetic to politics or any type of civic engagement. But it's pretty clear that there's an interest and there's kind of a that demographic is is coming up and they're they're running and they're winning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, encouraging. And you know what? and people that are perhaps have been into it much longer. So, you know, there's members of the state assembly, like I said, that are in their twenties and thirties and are brand new to it, but some of them are, you know, in their sixties and seventies and yeah. been there quite a while. So, but that's just sort of the nature of all these things. <clears throat> what I'd say is to some folks that maybe have been in office a long time, they might look at younger people and say, Oh, these kids, they don't know this or that, or they've never been through enough, blah, blah, blah. There's sort of the perception of entitlement when you're young and you want to do something. But what I'd also say is the reason that young people are coming into office in part is because of social media, but also is in part because so many people that had been campaigning in an old way of campaigning stopped talking to voters, yeah. stopped interacting with people, only started going to certain kind of events, mm-hmm. only would show up around this time or that time. And voter turnout, what happens? It gets lower and lower and lower. Is it a shock that this this last mayoral election, the voter turnout was a bit low? No, it's not surprising because... One, when you have somebody that's been in office as long as our current mayor has been in office, there's something to be said there. But then also, what are we doing to encourage people to vote other than running exciting, younger, new candidates? Mm-hmm. I mean, what else would have brought people out that would have, short of handing out $100 bills at polling places, I mean, <laughs> right, yeah. what are we doing to really bring <laughs> right, people right, which, out? Which, normally... which like, maybe Jimmy Griffin would have done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> worked for him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> did you catch any of the mayoral debate? Uh, last week i did i did yeah i mean i there wasn't many surprises it was an interesting sort of setup where they they they, they let you respond if there was a personal thing that's kind of interesting but i mean the other two folks that are there you didn't you're not convinced to vote for jazz miles now oh yeah no no, i was on the fence (laughs) honestly when it got down to the the two people on the right it seemed like you know one of the wrestling promos (laughs) just two people going off yeah i think jazz miles had some kind of wrestling background too no fitting yeah so speaking of like we were talking about how the uh, elected officials in New York state are more representative now of what the people look like. That includes governor. Mm-hmm. We have the first woman governor in the history of New York state. Mm-hmm. She happens to be a West New York native. So what do you think that means? You know, for like, we're a West New York focused podcast. What do you think it means for West New York having a governor from West New York for the first time since Grover Cleveland? You know, it's it, it was hard to imagine somebody making it happen. You know, obviously when when Kathy Hochul became uh, lieutenant governor, and obviously Bob Duffy was from Rochester before mm-hmm. that. But you know, when, when she became uh, lieutenant governor, you know, there was a lot of hope of like, oh, could you imagine one day? Wouldn't it be awesome if 
somebody from Buffalo from this neck of the woods. I'd say she brings so, so number you know on the surface one says well obviously if if you know she's from Buffalo then that means Buffalo's going to get more attention which just by the nature of that is probably going to be the case. But what it what's unique about it is that people from this neck of the woods that have been in politics and been in campaigning especially at the state level we all know that there's a that there's a nature that we bring that is very different. So I've already had one governmental meeting, we'll say, with Governor Hochul and a group of members from the State Assembly and State Senate, none of which were from Buffalo other than me. All of them were from either Queens or probably the Bronx. You know, I went in there sort of, you know, e- eager to sort of talk about the things that were important to me and, and, and you know, be supportive of my colleagues. And just Governor Hochul just hit it out of the park. You know, I, I think some of the members didn't quite know what to expect because some of them are new and hadn't mm-hmm. really engaged in her yet. But then also because I, I'm like the first person they've met from Buffalo. And she just happens to be the second person they've probably <laughs> met from Buffalo. So, you know, they're still sort of feeling all that out. And, you know, she was super attentive. She was super well prepared, just on the ball with like everything that they had brought up. And it was already, she there were, everything that was, came up from, you know, the... Uh, rental assistance to excluded worker fund to you know pandemic related things all of them were things that she just already had a plan on was working on doing and this was only about two weeks after coming into office uh you know being sworn in i should Mm -hmm. say and uh so, so i think there's a nature in buffalonians that have to move in in statewide circles and that is that we have to constantly you know, be ready, be prepared, be flexible, flex when, when it's time to flex, but also be collaborative when it's time to be collaborative. Because if not, we, we learn pretty quickly that it's easy to sort of be sidelined mm-hmm. by people that can barely point to Buffalo on a map. And I'll be honest, I mean, it's not a knock against any, any of my colleagues. When I first got to Albany, I genuinely thought, people were genuinely surprised that I was from Buffalo in part because of their perceptions. But I also think it's because some people downstate just think Buffalo's like country. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some people thought I was a bit of a hayseed when I would say I'd come I'm coming from Buffalo. They were a bit really? surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought that was a joke. Like I thought going into this, knowing that people from the city and you know think Buffalo is like practically Canada because we're practically Canada. <laughs> but I thought there wasn't much to that joke of like oh Buffalo. But you know, it's it's sort of mm-hmm. real in that you know they don't know that Buffalo is a real city and they mm-hmm. don't know. Even though Rochester's a real city, I mean, yeah. they, they it, it's this perception that it's Watertown or, or nothing against Watertown or that it's like near the Adirondacks, yeah. or, right? And yeah. it's like in the middle of nowhere, but it is what it is. So, I mean, you mentioned the eviction rental assistance program, and last week you guys had the moratorium vote, the special session. So, talk to me a little bit about that. Like, obviously, like you know, special sessions don't come about very often. You've got a district where obviously Hamburg isn't has renters people i think a lot of there's a misconception that people think like the suburban towns don't have renters they have a lot of renters oh, yeah. but certainly the city has a higher percentage of renters than than hamburg uh, so you had a very interesting district for that vote you know what led you to say all right well we have to support this and extend this moratorium she's stated multiple times that it's a priority for her is the eviction rental assistance program what do we got to do to get that rolling sure so the unique thing about Buffalo and its housing stock is that, especially where I live and a bit in the North Buffalo too, it's not uncommon for people to to own a double and to live in it you know, pretty much their whole life. My my whole life, up until the time I got married, I lived in doubles as a kid growing up. And it was a means by which 
either you would have family live upstairs or, you know, some people that didn't make a lot of money, they supplemented their income by an upstairs apartment, which is, you know, mm-hmm. common thing here. So there is a just a, there's a lot of renters, especially in the city of Buffalo and, and, and a bit in Lackawanna. I, I'd say the biggest issue and the biggest reason that I voted to extend it was I didn't just perceive it as an as the kicking of, of the can towards prohibiting evictions, because truthfully, where that where could that go? That, that could go until forever. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really a couple of things. One, we needed to address the way that um, landlords were able to determine whether tenants truly had hardships, which in the first version of this, we really didn't. So, and that was in part because we were moving so quickly, we're dealing with the pandemic and just, you know, things move quickly. So uh, now um, landlords do have the ability to challenge whether and and to determine whether tenants generally have a hardship. The other part of it is we're still in this pandemic. It's still real. People still aren't getting vaccinated for whatever reason. People aren't taking this as seriously as they should. And there are still people that are not working because of the pandemic. And it's not because, and I don't subscribe to the thought of like, oh, people are just lazy right. and people don't want to work and the unemployment benefits and this and that. Like, I don't buy any of that. I think it's all BS. I think especially in Buffalo, we are a people that are not shy from working hard. You know, we we live in Buffalo despite the weather, despite all of its shortcomings because we we plow through it, you mm-hmm. know, because because we just, we're, we're, we're resilient people. So to think that suddenly Buffalonians overnight changed to people that just wanted to sit on couches is not something I believe in. So I, I'd say that once we're, you know, th- that everything from bars to restaurants to movie theaters to you know, countless entities that I interact with, they're still not open full hours. They're, they're reduced shifts. They're, you know, have, have all these issues where they're just not moving the way that they should. So, and therefore, that's reflective in employees not making as much money, therefore not being able to pay rent. So I think as long as we continue to not take this virus serious and, and, and numbers keep going up as, as they've been lately, and we're going to have this problem for a while. So there's, you know, the correction of the hardship situation. There's the, you know, the ability for people to be employed the way that they were pre-pandemic. And then also, if we don't address this and people continue to have the financial problems that they have, making people homeless isn't going to do us any good. So like, so if, if we if we if we say, okay, you can evict anybody that, that can't afford to pay rent, even though they can justify that they have lo- have had lost wages then people will still evict people. Like if we don't say you can't evict people, then people will evict people mm-hmm. even if their hardship is genuine. So even if, even if I'm a waiter and my restaurant just closed four days a week when it used to be open seven days a week, that means my income is substantially less. And I go to my landlord and I say, I can't afford it because of this and this, and this is a genuine legitimate reason. It could be that the landlord still says, well, it's not my problem. And, you gotta go. It's it's likely. I mean, <laughs> so, I, I mean so what does you, that do? So that will make that would increase homelessness, which would then increase the spread of Corona, right. which would you know da 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 da, and then, right. that doesn't get us. So what about the inv- the rental assistance program ERAP here? I know you guys added some money to the the program, but right now there's there's it's just the rollout seems to be slow. Mm-hmm. Now Governor Hochul said she wants to make it a priority to get OTDA to start getting those funds, making sure they're out. I know there's some municipalities across the state that are handling the funds themselves. Mm-hmm. That's not the case here in Buffalo. In Buffalo, we're running it through the state. Yeah, from what I can tell, yeah, there's about maybe five or six municipalities. I think Monroe County is one of them that, mm-hmm. that they essentially handle the dissemination of that internally. From what I've heard, that that's not moving any quicker. Yeah. They're, they're in the same predicament, if not in a worse predicament, because there's still this, there's always going to be this additional thing that they has to, provide information to the state. So 
I, I'd say when we met with Governor Hochul, she made it abundantly clear that this was a top, top priority for her. In, in part because, if you think about it, we as a, a state government took a leap and said, okay, we're going to put aside over $2 billion to handle this one problem, which is not something we do often, right? We mm-hmm. don't just create programs and fund them to the tune of two plus more than $2 billion. If nothing else, you know, if, if it's in the budget and it's there, then it should be spent. Because it's not like it's going to go to something else. The other problem, so that's one. The second thing is we in government don't do a good job of communicating to people how to access funds, where to apply for funds. Let it be this or let it be, frankly, like any other program. Like short of knowing how to get your pistol permit, we don't do a good job, or your driver's (laughs) license maybe, that we don't do a good job of telling people where they need to go to get what they need to get and and to get it quickly. So money needed to be invested into just communicating that message more because there are tenants right now that still, despite all of the things we've talked about, about the eviction moratorium and everything else, that don't know that there's relief for them. Right. And there's landlords that still to this day do not know that that relief is really for them. Yeah. And one of the things is is unfortunately for some segments of the population, more and more things are being done predominantly online. And, you know, for older renters, mm-hmm. that's hard. Yeah. Um, you know, you, I mean. Or non-English speaking renters. Non-English speaking right. renters. Right. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, or, you know, a lot of renters, I mean, most people who rent don't do so because they're flush with cash, but they just choose not to buy a house. Right, right, right. right, right. They rent because that's what they can afford. And, you know, maybe during times when they're, wages have been cut and they're looking for something like rental assistance, they may have to cut things that seem like luxuries and potentially the internet might be one of them. I mean, we've been on the show many times. We've talked about like, we think that like the internet should be a public good. Uh, It should be, you know, basically run like uh, a utility, but it's not. Yeah. So while it's not, you know, I could I could easily see, you know, myself where I somebody who was, you know, caught in a, a f- tough financial situation going, do I really need to spend seventy five dollars on spectrum every month? Right. right. And on top of it, we don't do we also don't do the good work of encouraging uh, competition in that industry. Right. <laughs> so we also allow like spectrum to charge to. you seventy five yeah. instead of five other options that could at least make it more competitive. For yeah. Pricing. yeah. Speaking of competition for money. Or having a monopoly on it. Look at the seg. Here we go. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about our beloved Buffalo Bills. Yeah. Sure. We're recording this on September 11th. Tomorrow is September 12th. It is the big day. The big day. It's it's the season opener. The home opener. Pagula Sports Entertainment, as everybody knows, is looking for just a cool about 1.4 billion dollars for maybe they should fill out some e-rap <laughs> um, it, what i mean it's, it's not in your district but obviously it impacts everybody in the western york delegation and it's sure. going to be you know a combination of county and state negotiations do you have like I mean, where, where, where are you at right now with funding the bills sure so my my approach is a little unique because I, I came from working at the county. So prior to be, being in the state assembly, I worked in the Department of Public Works for the county. And the the stadium itself is technically a county facility. So I would often go to the stadium for meetings, for all kinds of things uh, related to the bills, related to our annual investment and what the county would, would, would pay into, you know, keeping up with, with the stadium. Um, so I've gotten to see a lot of things on the back end and, and and one, I have an appreciation for how expensive things are. People that kind of, I'll say this, 
being in government prior to running for office has been beneficial in this way, in that I have a better sense of how expensive things are and, and the, the cost of things and the potential that large construction projects can bring to an area that, that could use the, the jobs. So there's all these things that I sort of take into account. You know, to, to, to properly pave a road top to bottom, just a mile of road can cost you up to a million dollars. That's just one mile of one road. So uh, I think about that all the time when we talk about, well, you know, it's going to be so expensive and this and this and that. And I think that this region, you know, would we exist without the bills? Of course we would. We would be we would be Buffalo. We would be the people of Buffalo with Western New York with, with or without the bills. I'd say that we benefit from having a professional sports team just as much as we benefit from having, frankly, an institution like the Albright Knox or something as unique as, you know, we'll say our, our, our university system. Or It's good for know, the culture. It's good for the psyche of the yes, community, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, like... Would we exist if we didn't have Shays? Of course. Right. But it's nice that we have Shays. Yeah. It's nice that we have the Philharmonic. And it's nice that we have these institutions. And it it goes to our ability to punch above our weight class in a yeah. way. You know, I think that Buffalo is sort of a, a unique city, not just because of where we are, but because we used to be a city of so much wealth, we've still retained. And, and although we've made mistakes along the way of, of demolishing the wrong kind of buildings, we've kept so much of our of this huge you know, park system we have and all this architecture and all this art. And, you know, we, we, we stand above a lot of other places. And, and though we don't know it because we're here, part of that is because we have a, a professional football team. So mm-hmm. am I the biggest sports fan in the world? No, not really. But, you know, I, I, I believe that there's just a benefit to having institutions like the Bills, like the theater, like like everything else. Said. So I'd say, you know, it, it, it's something we should invest in and keep. I know that the kind executive and his team and uh, individuals from, from the state are, are negotiating that. So I wouldn't even begin to imagine dollars and cents where things are. And I, and it's not just because I, I used to work for him. I have a ton of respect for him. And I know that he'll, he'll move in, in the direction that, that keeps our values and, and what we appreciate and what we, what we want to hold on to and, and into account. I think that he's not the kind of guy that's going to give away the store by any mm-hmm. means. Um, it's not in his nature at all. And uh, I think that they're going to come to a conclusion where the county and the state do, do have to pay for, for part of it. But it's, it, it's an investment. I mean, in an ideal world, I'd rather be talking about building a new convention center. In an ideal world, I'd, be, I'd, I'd you know, rather be talking about other kinds of development. But... At the end of the day, the cost of a facility like that going empty has its own cost that people also don't take into account. And mm-hmm. it's not like we have a single university that's so big in its football program that it would simply just take over the stadium. I mean, UB's not there. No school's there. Right. That's, I mean, it's, I mentioned this <laughs> before. Uh, I get a couple people on uh, Twitter who are like, well, if, if the bills move, UB will just jump in yeah. and it'd only be a couple of years before the ACC takes them. I'm like, that's nonsense. The ACC has got no interest in UB. Like the football team isn't worth it. None of the other sports teams are worth it with the ACC in particular. Oh, between Syracuse and Notre Dame, Already has the Buffalo TV market locked up. You, oh, yeah. you might like we're not there, <laughs> right? We're just not there. Canisius has a better chance of joining the ACC. Honestly, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, there, there's and it just shows you like again when you talk about people that kind of have all these sort of lofty ideas of what we could do. A lot of it just doesn't come with the lens of like, okay, that's not practical because if we did this, then this would be a problem. And that's only because you know you work in government long enough, you just sort of see things and. 
you know, there's the whole conversation about, you know, why not the stadium on the waterfront or why not the stadium here or there? And even to that, I mean, I still think the idea of, of having it on the other side of Abbott, kind of where ECC is now, is a better idea. I think that Abbott Road, given its width and given the way it is, it's not ideal to move 70,000 people, you know, but at the same time, this region has grown quite accustomed to that. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not this huge inconvenience where in which we'd be displacing anybody. Some stadiums have gone on places where simply people live. So we're not going to be displacing people either. Right. And on top of it, the, there's no additional cost to infrastructure that if we yeah. would have put it downtown or at the Perry projects or on the waterfront, we would have had it. Well, that's the thing is like, you know, maybe uh, Abbott road and Miles strip, like they're not as much as we'd like to move 70,000 people. But could you imagine the fucking nonsense it would be if it was like in the Perry projects oh. and it's, oh. Be brutal. Two lane roads, yeah. two lane street, uh, city streets, oh, yeah. trying to move seventy thousand people in and out. Yeah, in a place that's much denser. So yeah, the, the benefit of having it off of an uh, Abbott, kind of an OP Hamburg area now, is that one we're sort of used to it now, but also it's not as densely populated as if it were on the west side or downtown mm-hmm. on the waterfront because you're so close to the throughway and everybody moving in all these different directions. There's no way you could expect to know how traffic's going to go. So. It's just much better, you know, I think it's just much better to be where it's going to be. And like I said, people are used to And on top of it, people are used to tailgating. I mean, yeah. this is a, this is another thing that sets us yeah. apart when it comes to the bills and that, you know, I've been to other stadiums. You know, I was just in Cleveland a couple of weeks back and and I thought of, and I went, I saw their stadium. I thought, well, where do people tailgate if, if, but it just dawned on me like, no, nah, they don't tailgate the way we tailgate in Buffalo. Right. Like, they do that in a parking garage, right? You know? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Kind yeah, of I mean, open. like. We have this wide open space. And Can imagine the accidents that people try to jump through tables on the top floor of the parking garage. <laughs> oh my god! Could you imagine? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, there's there's been people in RVs since like Thursday night waiting for the Sunday's game, and you, you couldn't do that in downtown Buffalo, right? Because there's not enough parking. Blah, blah, blah. So yeah, it's part of the experience, I think. Yep. All right. Last question for you is, and we're trying to we want to do this now with some of our uh, our elected friends who come here. Let's let's know your district a little bit better. Tell us something about the 149th that we might not know. Something about the 149th. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's your favorite like hidden restaurant or something that something that gets me out of Monica's (laughs) district and comes to visit your district. Uh, Well, it's funny because I have a a colleague of mine coming from the state assembly next week, so and it was on me to sort of say, okay, I'm going to tour her district and she's going to tour my district and. uh, there's a couple of places where I'm going to take her, and I, and I had to like wreck my brain, like, all right, where do I take her? Because it's unique to the 149th. And although it's not the 149th, yeah, we're going to stop in Niagara Falls because that's just the thing. Right, you, you have do, to. You do when you're, you got people from out of town. Um, but what I'd say is there's no district, especially in upstate New York, that has sort of the diversity of not just its people, but its diversity and, and in its economics, but the diversity and what's available to it. So, like, you look like a you look at a place like like the town of Hamburg. Hamburg is unique because there's no other town in Erie County that has its own beach, its own golf course, its own ice rink, and has the amenities that it has. Um, but then you look at a place like Lackawanna. You know, Lackawanna has this huge opportunity, and it's sort of this forgotten city that you know people kind of just drive right through. But I believe a big part of Buffalo's Western New York's economic future is is going to be on the former Bethlehem Steel site. So there's something amazing going on there, and then. You know, last night I was at Canal Side, and I just think 15 years ago, that didn't look like anything. Mm-hmm. And I, oddly enough, I used to work for HSBC, and where Harbor Center is, 
It used to be a parking lot I parked in every day, and I'm not that old, so it wasn't that <laughs> yeah. long ago. So our growth tends to be slower than what we think it is, but in the hindsight, it's always impressive if we allow it to be impressive mm-hmm. in our eyes. So a uh, unique thing about 149th, and so it's not just the the district that has a bit of everything, which is what I sort of look at it as, and that if you're interested in architectural history, it's there. If you're interested in, in parks, it's there. If waterfront, boating, fishing, um, golfing, like it's, you could do everything there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't, Outside of not having an airport, I suppose it it really has everything you need, and on top of it all, I'm I don't I'm not much of a cook, so I eat at a lot of restaurants. I can eat at every kind of food I want in in the 149th, like between the West Side Bazaar, mm-hmm. Folander on Niagara, Mulberry and Lackawanna, yeah. and the Grange in Hamburg. Like, yeah, it, I think I have some of the best restaurants in West New York. I yeah, mean, I, I, I yeah I I would I would agree with you there is that you know your district really nails. I mean I I eat in your district pretty regularly. So I was so I was I. I was at the West Side Bazaar just a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah, yeah. love that place. Yeah. My office is like a down the block from it, so it's great. Double O Seven Cafe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. if it, Elmwood Village enough, and then now you have things popping up on Niagara Street and in the Village of Hamburg, you got a lot of cool little restaurants opening mm-hmm. up. So yeah, so if you want to eat somewhere in Western New York, I say you come to the 149th. Sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. right on. <laughs> Take that 143rd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, Pat. No place to eat there. Yeah. So, yeah, all right. Uh, well, John, thanks again for uh, coming. Thank you. Where can we find you on social media? So I have, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. So yeah, find me. I'm trying to post as much as I can. It's certainly the thing that I'm lacking in the most. I talk about it as if I'm somebody that's brand new to it because I'm relatively brand new to it. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, just... Follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram, and um, feel free to call my office anytime. I'm on 65 Grand Street, too, so uh, come on by. I'm right next, uh, I'm right by Westside Bazaar. Yeah. You got anything going on that you want to promote right now? Uh, I guess I do have one thing. Um, I am co-hosting a paper goods and household supplies drive. Um, you know, everything that's gone on in the, in, in the pandemic, there's just been a, you know, open up a lot of eyes to food insecurity and to all kinds of things. Um, the need for broadband internet, frankly, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, there's going to be a paper goods and household supplies drive October 9th in Hamburg at the uh, Iris housing complex. So anybody that's able to donate, please do October 9th in uh, it's on four one five Oh souls road. All Thank right. Yeah, right. We'll put that in the uh, podcast description too. Cool. All that info. Cool. Yep. Thanks guys. John, thanks, thanks. so much. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you.